Nothing would have stopped us. Nothing did stop us, did it? For over four decades, they've only ever moved forward. There was nothing to go back to. There was no plan B. Through tragedy after tragedy and a complete reinvention. I think I brought calmness. Because <laughs> it was like, it wants to come and see the band that used to be Joy Division. Nobody. They've never really stopped to take a breath. Until now. You were happy not being a normal group. This is Transmissions, the definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. How did we feel in the aftermath of the um, disaster that was Ian's departure? Quite tragic departure. Obviously, you're a bit numb. It kind of, what's the expression? Left us a bit in the soup. We all wanted to carry on, which was the most important thing. It was just finding out how to carry on, which was the difficult thing. Rob Gretton was very, very intent on keeping us working, keeping us right there at the coalface, if you like, all the time. And that was one of the reasons why he got us gigs as soon as possible, really before we were ready. You know, we certainly weren't confident. But he made us do it. He was absolutely right. You know, he always used to say, him and Tony Wilson was the best song. He's gonna be your next one, so get on with it. Rob Gretton came up with this wonderful idea that we shouldn't play any of the Joy Division songs um, because that was the end of Joy Division, it was done. So, you know, a lovely idealistic idea, but put a tremendous amount of pressure on. We were like, okay, great, yeah, yeah, we've always been very idealistic, that is a very idealistic thing to do, but it was almost commercial suicide. It would be today. Or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was very clever, maybe it gave us this sort of mystique. With Ian gone and Joy Division finished, it was back to square one. To start again, first of all, they needed a new name. I remember sitting in the pub in Cheetah Mill near Pinky's rehearsal room below Pinky's disco where we used to rehearse and Rob took us to the pub and he was moaning because we hadn't picked a name. We'd tried very hard to come up with one. So literally he'd sat there with the Sunday Times and written down a load of what he felt could be used as names. Mau Mau, Dead End, Theatre of Cruelty, Sons of God, that's a bit pretentious. Maxim Gorky and um, Angry Brigade. We went through loads of them. Khmer Rouge was one that was very... <laughs> yeah, they were all terrorist organisations, which was the odd thing. We were looking for something neutral and Rob's suggestion was Paul Pot and had been in the news and he suggested the new order of the Campuchian Front. That was a bit of a mouthful. I mean, I wanted... Either the Sunshine Valley Dance Band or the Witch Doctors of Zimbabwe, which I think are excellent names for a pop group. Steve and Rob wanted the Witch Doctors of Zimbabwe and me and Barney were going, if we're called the Witch Doctors of Zimbabwe, we're leaving now, even before it starts. So it was the new order. Then we couldn't have the new order because it was the same as the MC5 Stooges spin-off group 
also called The New Order. So we became New Order. Which to us seemed quite a new way of doing things, a new occasion, fresh start. And it was all decided in a pub. Obviously, by the time we actually made the decision, we were fed up and pissed. New Order might have felt like a new fresh start, but it was also the term Adolf Hitler used to describe his plans for a Europe-wide Nazi state. After calling their first band Joy Division, wartime slang for the prostitute wing of a concentration camp, the group's fascination with the Third Reich raised eyebrows in the press. Baby idiots, we never realised Hitler, the Mein Kampf connotations, because we never thought of it, we didn't know, hadn't bloody read it. Um, and that would plague us again for quite a long time. I remember doing interviewing France with Steve Morris in 2000 and odd, when we got back together again for Get Ready, and the French interviewer asked us about our Nazi past or, you know, Nazi leanings, which was absolutely ridiculous because I think in 20 years of operating as New Order, we've proved over and over again that never our intention and was ridiculous to say the least. With a new name sorted, there was just one more thing to figure out. Who's going to sing? We all knew our roles in life and we're happy with those roles. The one job that nobody really wanted suddenly became vacant. Bernard Sumner. And so we wrote a few songs. We wrote about five or six songs and then we took them out to the eastern seaboard of America and, and did. The, I think we did the tour Joy Division was supposed to have done. I think initially it was just me, me, Steve and Peter, and we each tried singing in New York and it was all a bit of a shambles. It was very awkward. I don't know who to feel sorry for, us or the audience. I don't know what they expected, and I don't know what we bloody expected. You know, when I'm sure I heard somebody say, Which one's a dead guy? It takes a lot to be a singer. It takes a lot to be a singer. There's a singer, and then there's what's known in show business as a frontman. Ian was kind of like that. He was the focus of, of Joy Division. He was the thing that people looked at, which was great. And nobody could look at us being glued to the spot and being a bit shy and just concentrating on what we're doing. I mean, obviously, that wasn't a problem at first because nobody came to see us because it was like, it wants to come and see the band that used to be Joy Division. Nobody. And it was really, what does the band that used to be Joy Division do now that you're no longer Joy Division? And we then got the first idea out how to go about it because the main thing that we needed if we weren't going to be just a band that did instrumental albums was we needed some words and we needed somebody to sing them. So who would be the ideal candidate to step in front of the microphone? Stephen, Bernard, or perhaps bass player Peter. <laughs> Would I have made a good vocalist frontman? I mean, I, I found it difficult, and I think Rob sussed that more or less straight away, and I think what Rob didn't want to 
break was the relationship between the bass and drums because the relationship between the bass and drums that, that was so important on Joy Division had carried through into New Order. And I think he thought, shit, if I break that, I'm gonna ruin this band. What we need is for them two to focus. So I think Rob confronted that problem by encouraging Bernard to sing. With Bernard on singing duty, the band focused on recording their first single, but not without a helping hand from Ian Curtis. Ian, to say almost very kindly, left us ceremony in a lonely place to show us where we could go. This is how varied and how wonderful you are. This is what you can do. Wow, carry on. We recorded in a lonely place and we recorded Ceremony and that, that went okay, the recording went okay until the last day then we had all our equipment stolen from outside the hotel in New York because two of the roadies who were supposed to be looking after the van had fallen out with each other, we were in a tiff and weren't speaking to each other so they didn't disable the truck so someone nicked the truck with all the gear in it. That was uh, quite a disaster. So then we had to hire Beg, Steel and Borrow and, and buy new set of equipment to do this tour with. So that was really difficult. It was the first time I sang live on stage, or any of us had sung live on stage, to be fair. And so that made it even more difficult. So it was the whole th thing was a difficult period of transition, but it was bound to be, really, you know. It was pretty painful, yeah. Especially when the gear went, because we thought, well, what? Ian died, Joy Division is over. Now even the gear's gone, what, what else is going to happen? How much worse could it get, you know? I remember we were at the uh, Iroquois Hotel. It got to the point after the gear had gone, we even got, bought a Ouija board and we, we asked the Ouija board where the equipment was. <laughs> Come on, give us a break. What a strange frame of mind, we must have been in to do that. Once the band were back in Britain, it quickly became obvious that help was needed both on stage and in the recording studio. A fourth member. And it was manager Rob Gretton who thought Stephen Morris's then-girlfriend might just be what New Order needed. Rob just rang up one day and said, I've got an idea, just get Julian in playing guitar. It's like, what? Yeah, good idea. He was right, because the main problem was that, apart from singing, that if one of us was going to sing, we had to sing and play, and that, that was a difficult thing, singing and playing at the same time. I mean, singing and playing in the drums, apart from looking absolutely tortuous, is tortuous. It's really bad. Bernard and Lucky couldn't do it successfully. It was like strum, strum, sing, sing, strum, strum, sing, sing. When you think about it now, it's obvious. We'll get someone else to play the guitar while you're singing. Blimey, why didn't we think of that? And Gillian had stood in for Bernard at a gig in Eric's in Joy Division. So that was the idea. We'd get, we'd get Gillian in playing guitar and eventually keyboards. 
New Order invited Gillian Gilbert to join in early October 1980. When I joined, it was a bit out of the blue, really, because obviously Ian had just died and then I got asked to be in the band. I mean, they knew I played guitar a bit and I think I'd just started going out with Stephen at the time. I was only, like, 17, 18 and just had this idea of being in a band and I did guitar lessons at school. And so to being put in that position where everybody else knew everybody... But of course, I knew Stephen a bit, so it wasn't that bad. When we started rehearsing, it was just a matter of, oh my God, <laughs> they're actually, you know, like jamming and stuff. And it's like, I used to watch a lot of the time and then just used to play along. And I sort of fitted in then a bit, you know, but it was a bit weird at the beginning, of course, because I'd been to an all girls school as well, which is a bit of a weird. <laughs> He did that in them days. <laughs> A year after Gillian joined New Order, another era-defining Mancunian band got together. The Smiths. Here's the Smiths guitarist, Johnny Marr. What is often overlooked is that this really, really important band, which was Joy Division, evolved into a band and a girl joined. And you said, why should that be such a big deal? But this was 30-odd years ago, and they didn't get in some well-known musician. They got in someone who was close to home, and she was very enigmatic. You know, I'll try and sort of uh, say this without embarrassing her too much. But back in 1981, when they were on the cover of a magazine, she was uber cool. And on stage, she brought a dimension to the band, like visually, and played some great parts too. Nowadays, we are so used to a band with a girl playing keyboards, quite rightly. Uh, she was kind of the first to do that, as I remember it. And she played these cool little top lines, and then she'd put a guitar on and just look very mysterious. And that added to the allure of the band. So you've got that, which is bringing that kind of cool, remote, mysterious femininity to it. With the lineup complete, in April 1981, Bernard, Gillian, Peter, and Stephen started work on their maiden album. Movement. It hadn't yet been a year since Ian's death. Movement was very difficult. Bernard Sumner. I think when we're in the studio, it really reminded of Ian and, and we really missed the fact that he was not there anymore. Peter Hook. It was particularly bad. What we decided to do was rather than deal with the grief, around Ian death, we just threw ourselves into recording and writing. Uh, and it was our way of ignoring it, really, I suppose you'd have to say, in the same way that we put Joy Division of one side and ignored it. We just got on with it. Also, I was in a position where, uh, last time I was in the studio, I was a keyboard player and guitarist, and this time, a keyboard player, guitarist and singer and lyricist. I never dreamed of becoming a singer in my life before. Life took a very unexpected turn. 
and I had to deal with the consequences of that and uh, find my voice. We had no vocal lessons or no no experience of singing. Experience is probably the greater of those two things. So it was literally learning how to sing, but in public, and we're recording you learning how to sing. So it was very daunting. With Bernard trying to find his voice, the first song to go down on tape was a Peter Hook composition, Dreams Never End. Dreams Never End, uh, I wrote in the back bedroom of my house in Moston on the Sunday before we went back to work as New Order, which was the Sunday after the uh, funeral. I came up with the intro riff and, you know, the verse riff and I had a go at writing the vocals. And it was great to be able to go in and say, oh, look what I've got, you know, do, do, again, there was that feeling of you, you were going to march on and carry on against all the odds. drummer Stephen Morris. We all wrote words when we started. Hockey did Dreams That Never End, which was like the first first song that we did. I did ICB and Chosen Time and Procession. I think that was it. There might have been another one. Oh yeah, Cries and Whispers and Mesh. They were all my dubious sixth form handiwork called together after three tins of Carlsberg special, which seemed to be my way to get inspired lyrically. They're not particularly meaningful lyrics, no idea what they're about. The process of writing was just like jamming together, to listening back to the tapes. In Joy Division, the way they wrote was like, they wrote the music and then Ian used to say, oh, that's good and that good, I've got some lyrics. So we didn't sort of have that. We sort of did it in a different way. So Bernard used to do a lot of the lyrics afterwards or even when we used to play a track live and just jam. At the end of our set, he was completely gone by then, drunk, so he just didn't say anything. But most of the time, it was great. But Bernard was quite good. The words that Bernard wrote kind of sounded a bit like lyrics without sounding too much like Ian. I mean, we all we all tried to AP in style in the way that when Joy Division started, we tried to sound like a punk band, kind of like trying to sound a little bit too much like Ian, because that's really what we thought we ought to be doing. Of course it wasn't, but we didn't know any better. So Bernard ended up getting the short or longest straw and inherited the curse of the lead singer.
ideally and amazingly, it became our trademark. You know, me and Steve would play, Barney would sing, and then he'd join in with the guitar when he didn't sing. And it gave us our new style. It gave the New Order style. As New Order started to develop their own musical characters, their relationship with Martin Hannett began to deteriorate. The mood was troubled. Martin wasn't in a good place. I don't know what was right with Martin, but he either didn't want to be there doing it, or it'd gone off the rails, or he was, he was upset over Ian. Can't really imagine the latter, because he was a pretty tough, strong-headed guy. But it, Martin had gone off the rails and was um, drugs pretty bad. And not being that communicative with us. I've never worked with somebody like Martin who used to just make you do things again and again. But because I didn't know, I thought everybody was like that. And of course, I've heard things about what he did with Joy Division and Stephen especially, doing the drums again. So it was a bit fraught sometimes. I did a track over and over again, or a verse of a song over and over again. I said, look, Matt, I just can't keep doing this. What am I doing wrong? He said, just do it. I thought, no guidance. So I just did it, and I did it, and I did it, and I did it. I just went, right, fucking had enough of this. I went in a control room to go mad at him, and he'd left half an hour ago. <laughs> he'd come up with this scheme where he'd lock himself in the tape store and listen to what we were doing in the studio. And he said, if I hear anything I like, I'll come out. And he never came out. So, you know, that awful feeling of alienation and despair because you didn't know if you were creating something good or not was exacerbated by your bloody producer locking himself in with a grammar Charlie and never coming out. The only time he ever came out and the only time we ever heard him was when he left, either A, to get more drugs, or B, because he'd run out of drugs and he'd gone home. a ridiculous proposition really we should have gone in and kicked the fuck out of him to be honest it's amazing how easily you can fall into that trap of which which you have to say is an abusive relationship because we were paying him <laughs> it wasn't like he was doing it for nothing do you know what i mean it was like it was absolutely ridiculous to pay and be treated like that you know bloody hell so that was the sort of difficulty that was going on in the studio plus i had a sort of subconscious feeling that the kind of music we were doing wasn't right because it was like sub Joy Division to me. That's how it sounded to me, like in the mould of Joy Division. Of course we were Joy Division, but I didn't want to be Subby and Curtis and the lyrics I was writing and the vocal delivery. And it didn't feel right. The atmosphere in the studio wasn't great. We didn't have this bingo feeling every time we wrote a song. I didn't want to be Sub Ian Curtis and I felt I was sounding Sub Ian Curtis so there was a lot of searching going on it wasn't anyone's particular fault it was just a difficult transitional period While trying to navigate the transition from Joy Division to New Order the band went into experimentation mode I decided 
kind of, if I was going to reinvent myself, I should try and not play drums at the same sort of way that I did in Joy Division, which was kind of like a lot of roadie Tommy stuff and all that lot, and immediately broke my own, <laughs> own rules by doing a load of songs which had roadie Tommy drums in. I think it was Chosen Time. It was a bit of a debt to heart and soul by Joy Division, but it was kind of more of a disco-y kind of thing, more insistent, straight ahead kind of beat that that was, that was something. That was something that, that sounded a little bit different. Even before the movement sessions, Martin Hannett's fascination with new technology was influencing the sound of Joy Division and now New Order. When Joy Division did Closer, like, Stephen was like, I hate it, it's all drum machines, and they weren't very happy with it, but from an outsider's point of view, it was wonderful. So you don't know whether half of Martin's production was what the band didn't like at the time, or half of, like, is the point of a producer to make your song or piece of art different to how you perceive it? I don't know what comes first. Even at the end of Closer, we were getting into synthesizers and drum machines. The recording of Closer at the Britannia Row with Martin. Ian Martin was talking about this new drum machine, this little drum machine called the Doctor Rhythm that Korg were bringing out. He said, well, we should get one of those. I'm getting one, I'll get two. We got that, this little drum machine, just, just having that and the synthesizer, because you just get a new piece of gear and you write a song and we wrote the truth out of the weird kind of sound that the drum machine made that you, you if you'd played drums on it, I'm a true, I think I tried playing drums on it once, it sounded crap, it just didn't work. Driven by the use of cutting-edge technology, the fusion of electronic sounds and a rock instrumental approach became the driving force behind New Order. A rock band incorporate dance instruments in the form of drum machines and keyboards and pulse keyboards and sequence keyboards. It gave you your identity, you know, and to be in one band, Joy Division with such a distinct identity is pretty bloody lucky, but then to get into New Order and have two bands the way you've got a complete and distinct and separate identity was, was amazing. I, I don't know whether it was skill or luck, I, I can't tell. Witnessing the transition from Joy Division to New Order in real time was designer Peter Saville. I've always thought that a hierarchy would have actually crystallised around Ian. I mean, unwittingly and without any intent. But it's just what happens. When Ian wasn't there anymore, they had to kind of, in a way, compensate for his absence. And I think somehow with respect to Ian, in what they became in creating New Order, 
there was a collective methodology. And so New Order became the sum of its parts. How can you say that one individual is more important than another? That was the kind of, in a way, the composition that they arrived at. New Order is definitely the sum of its parts. New Order is not about any one person. After creating two memorable covers for Joy Division, Peter Saville was now tasked with creating the new look for New Order. The movement artwork, made up of lines and dots, was inspired by yet another of Peter's obsessions at the time, the Italian futurist, Fortunato Di Pero. When I think of movement, I just think of one thing. They came to visit me, as they had done with Closer. Rob said, what are you into this week? And I said, yeah, I'm into something called Italian futurism. They said, show me. I showed them my book of uh, the work of a man called Fortunato de Perro, who was, in a way, a graphic artist who was part of the futurist movement. And they went off into a room with a stack of post-it notes, and they gave me the book back. Post-it note for a single, and the post-it note for the album. The album was to be based on a poster or a journal cover, actually, by DePero. And Rob said, can you just change the words to say New Order Movement? And I said, well, I'll do something like that. And he said, no, you won't. He said, you'll do exactly that. We don't have time for you to fuck around. On the 13th of November 1981, Factory Records released their debut album by New Order, Movement. People's reaction to Movement was a bit mixed. Some Paul Soddle get Movement for Christmas was Danny Baker's reaction. Sixth form Pure Owl lyrics was uh, Julie Birchall's reaction. Never having got to the sixth form, I thought that was... <laughs> That was a compliment. <laughs> it's fair to say it wasn't well received, really. Some people thought it was very doomy, and I suppose it was in a way, because it was half the songs that Joy Division had wrote, I suppose, like Truth. Well, New Order were playing before I joined, so it was like a crossover. And of course, the dancey ones where we started using drum machines, where you sort of finding your own electronic pathway and the mood was definitely getting a bit brighter, I think. But it was great getting a bad review in a way. And I mean, even now, I suppose it's... If I see a bad review, <laughs> I think, oh, I really want to go and listen to that now. <laughs> but it wasn't just the critics who were giving New Order a hard time. Still enthralled to the sound of Joy Division, fans were finding it hard to get on board with movement. The audiences in many ways were almost as difficult as the LP was because all they wanted to hear was Joy Division. They weren't interested in the new stuff. And yet here we were, ignoring a great group with two wonderful LPs out and just carrying on playing this new stuff that, that no one wanted to hear. Speaking in 2005, here's factory boss Tony Wilson reflecting on the anxiety at the time around New Order potentially losing Joy Division's audience. Someone asked me about a year ago, how did I feel about New Order going from rock to dance? Would they leave their audience? And it was that moment that occurred to me that the audience had never occurred to me. I couldn't give a fuck, really. It was not something anyone at Factory would even think about, about losing one's audience, creating one's audience. 
You just did what you wanted to do. Really. The whole thing was was a, an adventure in willfulness. Yeah, I mean, the fact that things were about to get shitty with the new romantics. God, what crap. The initial reaction to movement from critics and fans alike might have been less than positive, but one ardent fan of Joy Division was immediately enthralled to New Order. They sort of changed the world twice. Bernard singing those melodies of New Order, these are, these are eternal melodies. Bono from U2. There's, you know, there's something going on there that I don't think music fully understands just how great these... All of them were. They could survive losing the singer. They found another singer. They found another way of, of finding unique territory. But the synthesis of playing in a room live and working with drum machines and a click track, and working on the grid, I'm not sure that had been done before. I think they were the first to do it. We went there a few times, most notably on With or Without You. We start with a, a drum machine and then Larry plays over it. Yes, Steve Morris was doing that. Larry Mullen would definitely nod in his direction if he were around. And he doesn't nod in many directions. In the 40 years since Movement was released, the critical appraisal of the album has shifted considerably. Writing in 2012, one journalist said, a movement exists almost exactly in between Joy Division's post-punk sound and the synth-pop style that would come to define new order and influence pop music for decades. It was painful to make. When you listen to it, you can hear that and you kind of think that pain. For me, listening to movement is best done accidentally, just for me. Because I, I was in a, where was it? An Urban Outfitters in Manhattan. And there was this song playing. Oh, this is really good, this. And it was, it was something off movement. When you just hear it and it's not in an environment and you've not chosen, you've not had that decision made, you know, I'd rather play anything than listen to my own stuff. And it's okay when I was surprised. I think Movement is a Joy Division musical record with New Order vocal. So Movement is the cross, it was the crossing. I think the thing about it though was we'd have waited a little bit longer Movement would have been a completely different record because it was kind of towards the end of the writing of Movement where we hit on Everything's Gone Green. Everything's Gone Green was released as a standalone single only two months after Movement hit the shops. In 
it was also the last track to be produced by Martin Hannett. He walked out of the mix following an argument with Peter and Bernard. It was an experiment. Um, it was just a noise. It was a thing that happened when you plugged the drum machine into a thing on the quadra and it went daka 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 I thought that sounds good. The first thing I suppose that both me and Bob Lucky thought was what the hell are we going to play on this? Because it had a drum machine on it already and it had a, that thing and it was daka 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 So what do you put on top of that? So you couldn't put another bass line on top of it. So we, I just sort of played the drums coming in and out. It was a, a, a jam that got sorted out in the studio and it was also the end of Martin Hammond. Tony Wilson. The most important single in the history of techno is Everything's Gone Green. And Everything's Gone Green was Martin. Martin experimenting, as he had done in isolation, the Joy Division song, with technology. You know, he'd already changed the way drums sound forever. Everything's Gone Green, following on from isolation, was an experiment in using primitive, very early computers as musical instruments. And the difference is, historically, music, great rock and roll, is Africa meets Europe. It's rhythm meets melody. And usually one instrument, one notation is the melody and one notation is the rhythm. And suddenly the computer was allowing Martin Hannett and then everybody else afterwards for the piece of notation to be the rhythm and the melody at the same time. And Everything's Gone Green is the first example. However much the computers were in Stephen and Gillian's hands and however brilliant a melodic hook he is, I do actually believe it was Bernard because the computer notation changes music forever. And Bernard did that, but only after he'd learnt it from Martin. Following Everything's Gone Green, the band put out yet another single. To this day, it's considered one of New Order's towering achievements. Temptation. Was really happy with the bass line. Steve's drums. Barney would then put the guitar on, which would just finish it off for us, and then he'd jam the vocal most of the time live. Pick out the best bits when we listen to cassettes, and then we'd work on it from there in the studio. We were working pretty much the same as we were with Joy Division, but differently. I suppose in a way it was British techno, done by working class white boys to the best of their ability. Temptation was definitely one where I can remember Bernard making the words up live. Usually, when he made words up, 
you know, afterwards when he made words up, they were mostly um, expletives or swear words, but they, this sounded like proper lyrics. Even the first time we did it, he had the green eyes, blue eyes, never seen anything quite like you before. So it was spontaneous, really, kind of like jazz. There's a wonderful moment when you order a singing temptation and it's as if they've just hardly written it yet and Bernard's stumbling his way through and going, oh, you've got green eyes, oh, you've got grey and blue. And it, somewhere, as you're watching that, you see Bernard finding his own voice. It's a kind of nonsense poetry, but it's his poetry and it makes sense. And then New Order can go forward. A month after the release of Temptation, Factory Records opened the doors to a new nightclub in Manchester. It's the only club I've ever been in that looks better in daylight. It was beautiful in daylight. Coming up next time, join us as we go inside the Hacienda. I'd have been only like 17, 18 at the time, you know what I mean? It was a bit like, ooh, she's a bit mad. So you just hit the bar and find the corner and try and stay out of the way, you know what I mean? I didn't get involved, you know what I mean? Hear how New Order helped make Manchester the home of house music. Suddenly, one night I went, and it was absolutely heaving. And people were wild. They were just behaving in the most wild manner. It changed the world, culturally and musically and fashion. It really did enrich not only Manchester, but the world. I'm Maxine Peake, and this has been part five of Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy Division, A New Order. The series producer is Craig Templeton-Smith. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. <laughs> <laughs>